part of the song we just sang certainly says it all. Truly, we really do need you. So uh, we come with open hearts this morning, but submissive hearts, acknowledging the truth that we really do need you. So Lord, uh, we pray that as we meet in this time that your name would be lifted up and you would be honored and glorified. And that everything that we hear and see within our own spiritual minds would be in such a way growth to us, growth in us. Lord, we thank you for the examples of Scripture, for the people that have gone before us. And we pray now that you would just help us to hear from you and look to their lives as examples for us to be faithful servants of yours. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Not sure if that's me popping or is it my mind popping? Got to be careful here. Sorry for the technical difficulties here. All right. Well, we are back in the book of Matthew. Thank you, Pastor Ham, for last week. So it's been a couple weeks now since we've actually, this will be our third week since we've been in Matthew. So find your place in Matthew chapter 1. This is the second part and really the conclusion to this message. The miraculous virgin birth. So find your place in Matthew. Let me read verses 18 and 19. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to read all the way down through verse 25, which will complete chapter 1. Last time we were together in part 1, we looked at verses 18 and 19. Then we're going to back up just a little bit and refresh our memories. And then uh, we're going to work through verses 20 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his dream and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So, Lord, you may be seated. So, we're going to do our best here to not pop. I'm really not hungry. It's not my stomach ground. <laughs> not sure what that's all about this morning. All right. Well, anyway, so let's just do a little quick review here, uh, just for a couple moments, just to catch our minds up again. Matthew has explained now, up to this point, the genealogy of Jesus. Pretty clear about that. He's talked about his physical right to be in the throne of David or in the the line of the Messiah, I should say, or to be the Messiah, and his royal right. And now, today in these verses, we're going to look at how Jesus has the divine right. If that becomes too frustrating for you, we'll do something different here with a handheld or something. Okay, so the divine right of Jesus to be the Messiah. Now, last time we looked at the relationship that Mary and Joseph had with each other, and it was uh, very interesting, I would say, to say the least. If you remember, they were legally married, 
but they were under that one-year betrothal period, which was literally or maybe literally no contact, physically certainly, and maybe very, very little contact at all, even in a social kind of setting. And so they're in this period of time waiting for the marriage ceremony to come, and uh, that would be the great occasion that they would be looking forward to, but they were legally married in the sense of the Jewish law. Remember all of that. But we also learned that there was a huge issue. There was a huge elephant in the room that they were learning about. And that is Mary learned through the power of the Spirit that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah, even though she had never known a man. The text makes that pretty clear. Joseph thought his wife had cheated on him. And that's really where we left this last time. And so Joseph is faced with a pretty challenging decision. What's he going to do here? How's he going to respond to this? And so our focus last time was basically on Joseph. He had two options, according to the law. One was to have her stoned. That's pretty tragic. The second one was to have her put away, which is what the scripture says, or divorce. Those were his options. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really like either one of those options. Can you imagine just for a second if you're Joseph... And the, the difficulty that he must have been experiencing in all of that. We talked a lot about that last time. And we'll touch on that again here in just a minute. We know from the text that he chose the latter. He decided to divorce her. But the text also tells us that not only did he decide to divorce her, but he decided to do it in a gracious way. He would put her away secretly or privately. And that really had to do with his own heart. He was a man truly who wanted to serve the Lord and be obedient to God, certainly in all ways, but he also loved Mary. I think we have to realize that. And so, not just wanting to fulfill the law, he would uphold the law, but she would also live. And that was a gracious concession on his part. You know, we talked about this last time before, is that if you've ever been with anyone, or you yourself have ever been through a divorce, you know how tragic that can be when you find out someone has cheated on you or you've been in any part of a relationship with somebody else or even just a friend that's gone through something like that, how challenging that must be. And so I think it's necessary for us to read between the lines as much as we can to really draw out from the text at times what God really doesn't speak much about but so we can focus on and hear God through it all. I think there's a, a kind of a subtle message, though, in Joseph's life right now through this that we need to pay attention to. And that is, is that there are many times in life we don't know what God is doing. And all of us who have walked with the Lord and uh, served him for any length of time at all understand that there are just times where we just look to the heavens and we say, God, we don't know what you're doing. This is not making sense here. Imagine again, if you're Joseph, that kind of conversation with the Lord. Here he's met the woman of his dreams. He's now gone into this legal binding agreement with her. And he finds out this. And he looks to the heavens, I have to believe in my mind, and say, God, what is really going on here? But the reality is, it's not for us to know. It wasn't for Joseph to know, at least at that moment. We'll see this in just a second. In fact, Solomon, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, is from Ecclesiastes, the latter part of the book. Remember Solomon was David's son, but he was king of Israel and he had everything that the world could afford, literally. He had hundreds of wives. He had every piece of material possession that the world could afford to give him. He was the king over the land. 
And so the story goes in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, through his own words, says it's all vanity. It's all vanity. None of this really has any meaning at all. Gets to the conclusion of the book. And in chapter 12, verse 13, says this. When it's all been said and done, basically, in the final analysis, here's what God wants. And that is to fear him and to keep his commandments. That's really what it boils down to. Whatever you or I are facing in this life right now, we need to remember that this is really the conclusion of it all. Now, Jesus would say, love God with all your heart, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. Solomon put it this way, fear God and keep his commandments. That's what God wants. That's the answer to this life. Now, in Joseph's case, as we think about him, he didn't follow the law of retribution. He could have. He could have had her stone. Even though he was deeply hurt, he didn't do that. He chose the latter because he, again, was a man of gracious, of a gracious heart and compassionate. And he wasn't neglecting his righteous duties. We're told that he was a righteous man. He wasn't neglecting any of that. He was fulfilling every requirement of the law, but being kind about it at the same time. And that's a great picture. You know, we live in a culture today where the abuse of the legal rights of people goes on pretty rapidly. And rampantly. In fact, I was reading some things today, or this past week, that kind of made me chuckle a little bit. Some of you all will remember this, especially if you're Starbucks fans. I think it was back in 2016, there was a lawsuit against Starbucks because they had put, somebody said they put too much ice in their cup and it watered down their drink. It was interesting to listen to the writer of that particular article say, well, even a two-year-old knows that when you put ice in a cup, it melts, and it dilutes the Kool-Aid. So, but there was a lawsuit that somebody actually put out against Starbucks. I don't think it actually went through. One of the craziest ones, though, of a, an abuse of a legal issue was a guy by the name of Robert Lee Brock. He was an inmate here in the Virginia penitentiary system. He was serving a 23-year sentence for breaking and entering and larceny. Well, during his incarceration, he filed numerous lawsuits against the prison. And some of those, probably rightfully so, the prison life, the food, the clothing, the water, coffee, the mail system, all of those kind of things. But the one that really, really got me was his ridiculous suit, it says here, against himself. Now listen to this. He sued himself for $5 million, <laughs> claiming that he had violated his own civil rights and religious beliefs by getting drunk. His drunkenness was the reason he committed the crimes and landed him in prison. And the article says, of course, Brock had no income because he was in prison, so he expected the state to pay the damages. <laughs> Not surprisingly, the case was thrown out by the judge. Okay, so, you know, here's an example, as foolish as it is, of going by the legal system, but really not understanding at all. Well, I think the point of it is, is that as believers in Christ, let's go back to us for just a minute. As believers in the Lord Jesus, really, honestly, the best option is always to be kind. Isn't it? And Joseph gives, us, Joseph gives us a beautiful picture of this. Kind, gracious, but just at the same time. I mean, again, let's put those two together. He was living out both of these things. There's got to be this balance of justness in this life 
but also kindness. We were just having a conversation with someone recently, my wife and I, about how it's never okay to be unkind to someone. It's never okay. There's no justification to ever be unkind to someone. Righteous, yes. Kind, yes. Some years ago, I know of a family who had a child playing in a, a Burger King playground and uh, the, the climbing things, and the child was climbing through one of the tubes and slipped and hit their forehead and caused a pretty good gash there. And, uh, thankfully, this family decided that they would not sue the company, which they probably could have owned Burger King at this point, right, based on how lawsuits go today, uh, but just simply said, listen, we would just appreciate help with the medical bill, which is what they did. And it was a, a great thing, and it turned out really, really well. So being just doesn't mean you take somebody for all they have. Uh, Joseph could have done that. He could have looked at Mary and said, how could you do this to me? And really thrown the law at her. He could have had her stoned, but he didn't do that. Being just means you allow the law to work on your behalf. Certainly. I mean, that's really what it's all about. That's what the law is there for. But you are the one who limits what happens in that scenario. Again, many people in our culture today, and you may have felt this way, that if you're done unjustly, you go to law over just about anything. And I'm not saying you shouldn't go to law. That's why we, we have the court system that we have here today. But the point is, we should be kind in whatever we're doing. Because that's really the heart of righteousness. That's really how a righteous heart works. In fact, Jesus himself is going to teach in chapter 5. You've been reading this. By the way, you should be now on your third 30 days of reading. should have just started for you, this book of Matthew. Jesus is going to say, if someone sues you, remember in his Sermon on the Mount, we'll get to all of this sometime later, give him your coat also. Here's what he says in verse 40 of chapter 5. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And that's probably where the phrase comes from. They you know, sued the shirt off of me or something. But... Um, Jesus is going to say, listen, this is the heart of the gospel. The reason that I came was to show an act of grace. Did Jesus have the right to condemn us when he came? Of course he did. He could have easily committed us to unrighteousness and cast us into an eternal damnation, but he didn't because he wanted to express to us who God truly is. He's a God of forgiveness. But remember now, in the gospel, the debt is paid, right? So the legal part of it is still being enacted. Jesus fulfilled the law by his own death, but then at the same time set us free. You see this in Joseph's life? What a beautiful picture here that we have in just a, a verse or two of a scenario of Jesus coming into the world, but his own earthly father would become an example of the gospel, even as he was having to deal with his wife. Now, Let's go into the breakdown of these verses here as all of that introduction for us. We'll get through this pretty quickly. We covered, if you're looking at the back of your bulletin, you'll see this layout, this outline. We've talked about these two aspects in these verses, the events leading to Jesus' birth, which were the wedding plans in motion and the trouble for the young couple. Now let's start with the heavenly council because everything shifts for Joseph, praise the Lord. Verse 20, but when he had considered this, that's Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, let's go to Joseph again for a minute. This word considered, as the text says, when he considered, it simply means to ponder. It's 
what it sounds like. He's going back and forth. Can you imagine? As he's feeling this and then feeling that, trying to determine what he should do. And in the midst of that time period, we're not told how long it is that he's dealing with this subject, probably pretty short. He has a dream. An amazing thing happens. In this dream, God tells him what he wants him to do. Now let's just talk about the dreams for just a minute, because I still hear in my own conversations with people at times this whole concept of a dream and what God is doing through my dream. People live through their dreams a lot of times. So let's just talk about what's happening here. It wasn't uncommon for people to hear from God through a dream. There are numerous places in Scripture that God gives us that kind of illustration. But God doesn't need to do that now. Then he did it because the word wasn't completed. The scriptures weren't complete. Now we know the beginning from the end. But in those days, that was not the case. So God would speak to them. He would send them messages through dreams and even visions. In fact, as we studied John's revelation, notice, you remember how many times John received something like this from God. <clears throat> but as amazing as the scenario is here about a dream that Joseph would have, the dream is not the emphasis. That's not the important point. What's really important here is the message that the angel has given to him. Now, people can get, again, as I said, all caught up in the dreams, often assuming that God is sending some kind of message. Now, I'm not going to stand up here this morning and say that God doesn't use things like that in our life to help guide us. <clears throat> but to put all of our hope and our thoughts into some dream really can derail us if we're not very, very careful. Dreams are not God's way of revealing truth anymore. He doesn't need to do that. As I was just saying a second ago, we have his word. Dreams predominantly, and we know this from a scientific perspective as well, dreams predominantly are our fleshly way of trying to make sense out of things. If you ever do dream studies, which is really interesting, and you do all of this in psychological uh, schooling, Dreams are our physical brains trying to make sense out of things that don't make sense. That's really what's happening in a lot of ways. For instance, you go to bed at night, you've got something on your mind, and you're thinking through it, you're not really sure what to do, and then in your unconscious state, you begin to have all these thoughts about rhinoceroses dancing on your head, and purple submarines, and all these weird kind of stuff. Well, that's your brain trying to make some kind of sense out of what's happening in the world. So you wake up in the morning, and you go, that was ridiculous. There are no such thing as purple submarines or rhinoceroses dancing on my head, so that was just something weird. Okay? So we got to be careful that we don't put our emphasis and effort into dreams. I remember one time specifically when I was doing my painting work years ago, I was kneeled down, and I was working on a piece of trim, and I was listening to a sermon, as I often did with my headphones, because there was a lot of noise in the background. It was kind of a construction site kind of thing. And I never forget this penetrating thought that I had in my heart that sat me up straight. And it was something about what was going to happen to one of my children. And it was so fearful. It caused so much fear in my heart that I'd never forgotten it. And I can remember it to this day. And I started thinking that, well, maybe this scenario is going to come true. Maybe God is really trying to tell me something here. And so I would remember as certain events would happen that maybe that dream was going to be fulfilled in some way. And you say, well, you weren't asleep. Well, I was kind of in this weird kind of 
If you've ever painted, I know Danny understands this, you kind of get into this trance, it's almost like watching fire burning. And you can kind of, you got a lot to do and you just kind of keep going with the strokes. Have you ever noticed that the brush strokes make a lot of noises? It's terrible, you got to wear your earmuffs to keep the brush strokes. That's a joke. Paint brushes don't make a lot of noise. Okay. Anyway, so, but the point is, is that if we're not careful, we'll follow things in life as if they're reality instead of going to the Word of the Lord. And so that situation has never come about, and I soon learned that that was a fear tactic by the enemy to try to get me all caught up into something, which almost happened for several years. I mean, I really got wrapped up into it for a lot of years, fearful over something that was going to happen. But I learned again that that's not what we're to do. We're to follow the word of the Lord and live by faith and throw out these things that cause a lot of confusion. Now Joseph's dream, back to him, was not confusing. This was God's means of talking to him. It was clarifying. It was certainly informative for him. He needed to have this happen. It was instructive and it was very commanding. This was a direct command basically from the Lord. Notice the angel says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Now, if you've ever watched the movie The Nativity, it's one of the latest that I know of. A few years ago, we actually watched it here one year before Christmas of just that. It's called The Nativity. It's a great scene, great couple scenes in the movie. One of them is when Joseph and Mary are on their way back to Jerusalem. And they're sitting by a little campfire and the wind is blowing and they're traveling with an entourage. It's kind of other people going back because of the census. And in the movie they portray it this way where Mary looks at Joseph and says to him, are you afraid? And he just shakes his head and his eyes gets real big like this and he says, yeah, basically I'm terrified. I don't know what's going to happen here. Well, Joseph needed to have this kind of encounter because uh, God was doing something great here. The word afraid here is the word phobeo. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Phobia. I mean, this was a real thing in Joseph's heart. He's married this woman in the betrothal state. Now he finds out that she's cheated on him. He's got a lot of terrifying feelings about this. But what it does do is it shows us the life of Joseph pretty interestingly that two things really come to mind. He was fully human. I mean, that's what humans do, right? We get afraid of things. And he was terrified. He was scared. Can you imagine, again, the uncertainty in his mind? Think about what he would have to say to the neighbors. I mean, they lived in close proximity with each other. And so how do you tell your neighbor that, oh, uh, yeah, well, um, Mary decided to go off to college for a while. I mean, what do you say to people about all of this? How are they going to understand? How is he going to best be able to protect her? I mean, what would the culture, what would the community think? They understood the law and put her away secretly without exposing her. I mean, all these thoughts going through his mind must have been horrific. So whatever it was, I'm just simply saying, the Lord is telling us here, this was a real fear, just like your fears are real. They are real situations. They're reality to them. They're not figments of your mind. And so much so that God wouldn't say, Joseph, don't be afraid if they weren't real fears. God's not going to say that if it wasn't real. And I have to believe there are times in our life where God says to us, listen, don't be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. What you need to do is you need to trust me. Because he knows and we know that fear is a huge motivator. Mostly bad. 
Unfortunately, the negative sides of life, people try to use fear in order to motivate us in a wrong kind of way. Fear brings about a lot of weird kind of thoughts, doesn't it? I mean, let me just read you one of these that I found, too, that I thought this was interesting. There were two explorers who were on a jungle safari when suddenly a ferocious lion jumped in front of them. The first one said, keep calm. Remember what we read in the book on wild animals. If you stand perfectly still and look the lion in the eye, he will turn and run. And so his companion says, sure, but... Has the lion read the book? <laughs> Those strange thoughts that come to mind when you're standing in the face of fear. And fear causes us to do some pretty strange things as well. You remember the guy, Louis Pasteur? Remember that name? It's reported to have that it's reported that he had such an irrational fear of dirt and infection that he refused to shake hands with people. Now you may say, well, that's not so weird. I'm just the same way. We wash our hands with all this kind of antibacterial soaps and the hand solutions, and we're careful about what we do and where we go. Well, President and Mrs. Benjamin Harrison, some many years ago, were so intimidated by the newfangled electricity installed in the White House that they didn't dare touch the switches. If there were no servants around to turn off the lights when the Harrisons went to bed, they slept with the lights on because they were so scared to touch the light switch. Debbie and I just took Jordan over to JMU on Thursday for orientation for his first year coming up. And it was really interesting. One of the things that the young lady said talking to the parents was, now I know that you as parents have booked your hotel room here in Harrisonburg for the next four weeks, even though you're supposed to drop your child off. Making the point that, listen, as parents, you know, oh yeah, we can't leave our baby here we got to stick around. And so she went on to make a joke about that, about how those fears really set us off in some really strange cases. Okay, so I think we understand that now. His fear, Joseph's fear, was very real. Your fear is very real. But what do we do about that? Let's go on with the angel's message here. Because it's really twofold. Here's how he dispels Joseph's fear. He says, For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The child belongs to God. Joseph, that's the first thing that you need to understand. Now let's talk about this technicality here of conceive. That word conceive, people have really gotten stumped over this. And we talk about witnessing the people. We need to know some of these things so that we're able to answer questions of this miraculous event that occurred here. This word conceived means to begotten. The Hebrew and Greek word, which is what this would have been written in, was literally to bear or to bring forth. So in other words, you could say it this way. God brought forth his son. That's what he was doing. He did it through Mary. She became the vehicle through which he came to the earth. And he did it by placing her in his womb supernaturally. Placing him in her womb supernaturally. You get the point. And interestingly, Mary knew it was supernatural. She didn't need to have this explained to her, although she did. If you go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, the angel says to her, as he appears to her, don't be afraid, Mary. That sounds familiar. Just talking about that with Joseph. Well, Mary evidently was experiencing something here. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He's going to be great. You will call him the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, listen, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, we know what conceive is. It's to become pregnant. That's what, this, that's what the angel tells her. You're going to become pregnant. Well, how's this going to happen? People have come up with all kinds of solutions to this. Well, the text says that the Spirit will come upon you. That means he's going to come to you. He will arrive, is what the literal translation is. Not sexually. And we know that because of what he says here. He will overshadow you. That means that he is going to, the idea is, cast shade upon you. Just picture this in your mind. Or cast a shadow on. It's really an analogy to how the Spirit of God has always worked in the lives of people. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament tabernacle, that's exactly how God appeared to them. The meaning there is, in the tabernacle sense, is that the people or the tent would be enveloped or enveloped in a haze of brilliance. This glory of God would overshadow the tabernacle. In fact, in Exodus 40, we're told that Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Well, the wording in Matthew is very similar to this. Is that this is what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of Mary. And there are a couple other places that the same kind of overshadowing is made mention of in Matthew chapter 17. And even again in the book of Hebrews chapter 5. So whatever the Holy Spirit is doing in a technical sense, what we need to make sure we understand is that this was very supernatural. This is all the work of the Lord, no human intervention here, which is what many of the critics have tried to proclaim, that this was some fabricated kind of story to make it sound better, that Joseph is really his father, but that is not the case, and certainly what Matthew is giving clarity for us in all of this. This was a divine work of the power of the Holy Spirit, which also verifies the virginity of Mary. In other words, there is no way to claim that Jesus was from a human father of any sort. This was a miraculous work of the Lord. And Mary, the mother of the Lord, knew that better than anyone. Because we just had record of what she said. You go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel says, The child will be holy. For that reason the holy child shall be called the Son of God. Now, just as a footnote here, Again, to answer the critics a little bit, the child is not holy because of the miraculous birth. That doesn't, that's not what makes Jesus holy. And a lot of people get lost in that. He's holy because He is God. The birth is just the means through which He comes to this earth. And it must be that way to be the Savior. He must be holy if He's going to be truly who God proclaims Him to be, which is what Gabriel says next, which is the second part of this. He is going to be the Savior. Notice the message from the angel. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This is all to Joseph. For he will save his people from their sins. And to that we shout hallelujah, don't we? There's no misinterpreting this. This is a male child identified by the word son. You know, we got all the gender neutral stuff going on out there. But here's what the Lord says. We got the pronoun his here. Where Joseph is told, you shall call his name Jesus. That's a male name. Because he is a male. 
contrary to the belief today that God is a woman. And we've even had books that were written about that. How God is gender neutral. Well, the text of Scripture identifies God as male. You say, well, why the name Jesus? Because the name Jesus literally means Jehovah will save. And so God is proclaiming the message not just to Joseph but to the world. This child that is in your wife's womb is God himself who has come to the earth. No man has had anything to do with this. This is all God's work. Mary knew it, and now Joseph was hearing the same message. Again, others have had the same name. There have been other people by the name of Jesus. But this Jesus is the only Jesus who would be salvation. There is none other like him. In fact, Acts 4, chapter, Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The name Jesus is very purposeful. And Joseph is hearing that this is your commandment, Joseph. You will name this child Jesus. Make no mistake about it. Why? Because he has come and will come to rescue those whom he has called. Okay, now let's move on here to verse 22 because now Joseph hears the rest of this message or more of this message, almost as if the angel is saying, and by the way, Joseph, this is not new to you. This is not you to Mary. This has been proclaimed for centuries. And he brings that up. Now all this took place in verse 22, all of this being the scenario here, the immediate, the immediate scenario, to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And so now we have this quote, from the prophet's writing in verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now Emmanuel is the Hebrew writing, and so this is Greek, and so he's translating it for us. In other words, what we see here is that the announcement of the birth of Christ to Mary and Joseph was not a new message. It was made known hundreds of years prior to Christ's coming. And so through this proclaimer, this prophet, who is Isaiah, we get the message. Now there's an interesting context to this prophecy. Some of you may not care about this, but it's pretty interesting because how God weaves his work together in the life of someone, which in this case is going to be the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years prior to the foretelling of, of the actual event of what he's prophesying, is really, really fascinating. So let me just take you back there for just a minute. And you can relax for a second and just listen to this. Some of you may have studied through this and heard this before. But the story goes, and the truth is, from scriptures, that Isaiah would be called, he's the prophet here, who would be called by God to go to King Ahaz, who was the king of Judah, and give him a message. That's what prophets did. Now, Isaiah, excuse me, Ahaz was the grandson of Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king. Ahaz was not. He was a wicked king. So God has a message for Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah has turned to idols. He is even, now listen, he's a Hebrew. He's the king of Judah. But yet he himself has even offered one of his own sons to Molech. Burned him in the fire. And so he has really fallen off the wagon here and gone for pagan worship. But because of Ahaz's wickedness and God's promise to his people Israel, the king of Syria and the king of the northern tribes in Israel come together and they devise a plan to go to Ahaz and say, hey, join with us as we go to the, attack the Assyrians. 
Well, he won't do it. And so they say, well, we got to get rid of Ahaz because he's a thorn in our flesh too. And so they come, or making plans to come and overthrow him. And it's then that Isaiah comes with the message right here that we're told in Matthew's gospel to Ahaz. And he's told, listen, nothing's going to happen to Judah. God has promised that everything's going to be okay. And here's how you're going to know. He said, there's going to come a time where the Lord himself will give you a sign in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now the word you in here in Isaiah 7 is very interesting because it has a double meaning. It means to you, Isaiah, but also to you, Israel, plural. So God is speaking in a dual prophecy here. Now sure enough, what was going to happen in Isaiah's day is that he and his wife would actually have a son. Isaiah and his wife would have a son. And that son would grow to a certain age before anything would ever happen between these two nations that were going to come against them. And sure enough, through a long story short, I won't go into all of it, God protects Judah as a direct result of the immediate prophecy of Isaiah to Ahaz. Now the unique part about it is Isaiah was also prophesying about another virgin who would be married that would become pregnant and bring into this world the true king of the Hebrews the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a double prophecy that's really happening here. In fact, if you go back to verse 15 and 16 in Isaiah 7, you see very clearly that this is not the same prophecy as the first part of it in verse 14, because Isaiah is told that this child will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and good. That's the one talking about his son. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. And so the story goes that way, that God will provide this son for Isaiah and his wife, and also the son who will be the son for all mankind. And so that's why Gabriel goes back to Joseph and he says, listen, here's the sign that Isaiah prophesied. You know this as a Hebrew. It's not just about what happened to Isaiah, but there is truly a son who will come. And by the way, Joseph, that son is going to be in the womb of your wife, Mary. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. God is doing something huge. And then we finally come to the last part here, verses 24 and 25. We read this beautiful summation in Joseph's heart here now as he's gone through this real trauma. Joseph awakes from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. We're talking about going to bed and sleeping all. Look what happened. You think about all this. Joseph goes to bed not sure what to do about all of this. You, know, you probably have those times in your life where you say, oh, you know what, it's too much for me to think about right now. I'm just going to go to bed. I'm going to process it overnight and wake up with a new fresh mind and make a decision in the morning. Well, that's evidently what Joseph does. He goes to bed. He has this incredible dream. Awakens because God in his own way has given affirmation of this truth. He's confirmed for him in his heart that he doesn't need to be afraid, that this is truly of the Lord. And so Joseph awakens with a renewed spirit. Can you imagine? 
Have you ever had a time where you were trying to make a decision about something and you just internally just knew something was wrong? But you just didn't really know what to do about it. And then when it was actually rectified, you just feel that weight being taken off of you. Imagine the weight that Joseph must have felt taken off of him now. He knows now everything's going to be okay. That God is doing something miraculous here. He is affirmed to take Mary as his wife. Don't be afraid to do that. You've got a baby on the way. I mean, these are good days now. And it's just switched around in a matter of a blink of an eye. And oh, by the way, Joseph... Understand this, that the baby is going to be the Son of God. Amazing. We go from this emotional roller coaster to how could my wife cheat on me to coming to the understanding that is God miraculously working to bring His Son into the world. Staggering. Absolutely staggering. Can you imagine the thinking now? Gosh, what are our lives going to be like? Son of God? Really? There's another scene in that movie that I was talking about, the nativity, where Joseph says to Mary, I wonder if I'll be able to teach him anything. I mean, dads, come on. Imagine being Jesus' dad. I mean, you don't need to teach him how to work a drill or hammer a nail. Or Now, we know that's not true because the text does tell us that Jesus learned in his humanity all things as we have to learn. And so he came into this world fully human but fully divine at the same time. But can you imagine just from an earthly perspective what the dad must have been thinking? I'm not going to be able to teach him anything. He's going to teach me everything. And certainly the, the, the story does switch when that begins to start being the case. You know, the reality is, is that this is really all we know about Joseph. We've spent two messages talking about him. But this is really all we know about him, except for just a couple other things. We know that Joseph lives out his righteousness because he obeys what the angel tells him. And can I say that that's always a good thing to do? When God says something in his word to us, we should obey, right? I mean, let's just agree with that. And that's what Joseph's doing here. He calls the, t the child Jesus. That's what the Lord told him to do. He didn't question all of that. He just says, okay, Lord, you got my attention now. I'm going to obey here. And again, isn't that what Ecclesiastes tells us? We just read that a few minutes ago. Here's what God wants. Fear me and obey me. Well, Joseph's living that out. And again, that's the message to us. We're to fear God and obey Him. We're to do what the Lord tells us to do. We don't have to understand it. It's not for us to try to figure out every little detail of our lives and have it all in rank and file. There's nothing wrong with having your life scheduled out. But to get so lost in your schedule sometimes means backing up and saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to cry uncle here and I'm just going to do it your way. And that's when we often find the work of the Lord the strongest in our lives. Instead of us dictating to God how things are going to be, it's far better to just sit back and let the Lord dictate to us what he wants from us. Let's play the other, other side of the coin. What if Joseph had said something like this? Uh-uh, God, I'm not doing that. What if he awoken from the dream and said, no, not going to do that. I've already made up my mind. I've already called the divorce lawyer. He's already written up the contract. Everything's set in motion. I can't change this now. Are you crazy? Well, you know, that's how the Lord works, though. Sometimes God, and in fact I would say, God is really good at showing up at the last minute. You ask the question, why couldn't God have told Joseph this a long time ago? Saved him a lot of headache, wouldn't he? 
You might be asking the same question. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking about my situation right now. Why couldn't God have told me that three days ago, four days ago, five days ago, a month ago, a year ago? If he'd have told me then, this would all save me a whole lot of heartache, a whole lot of money. Well, listen, God doesn't work on our timetable. God doesn't work according to our desires. God works according to his plan. He looks to us to be obedient to him and follow what he wants. And so we know that Joseph lived a life of obedience because he doesn't consummate the marriage, the wedding, until after the child is born. Notice in verse 25, he keeps her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And by the way, that's a great statement to say that, yes, they did have other children. Now, this is a huge indictment against the Catholic Church. I'll tell you why in just a second. We know according to Matthew chapter 12 that there were other children born to Joseph and Mary, at least to Mary, while he was still speaking to the crowds. Behold, his mother and his brothers were standing outside speaking to him. In chapter 13, verse 55 of Matthew, is this not the carpenter's son? That's Joseph. Is not his mother called Mary? And how about this? His brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? I mean, this family's pretty well known, right? You see, the Catholic Church has this thing called the perpetual virginity of Mary. They literally believe that Mary, even though she was married to Joseph, had no other children because she was deity. She would not be violated by a human man. And here's right out of CatholicStraightAnswers.com. Succinctly, we as Catholics believe that Mary and Joseph did not have other children after the birth of Christ. And here's their evidence. No evidence exists either in sacred scripture or tradition to believe otherwise. What? I just read from Matthew's gospel, by the way, which is also in the Catholic Bible. Shocking. Satan is full of deception. Listen, here's the reality. Mary was not God. She was a woman, just like many of you. She was a lady who was just serving the Lord, and God saw her righteousness in her heart, had chosen this, had planned this, and calls from her this poor woman, who probably was poor, from Israel, to have the greatest blessing that any woman could ever have to bring the Savior into the world. So you say, well, what's this story really all about? Is it about Mary and Joseph? Yes. Certainly about Mary and Joseph. We learn a lot from them. Is it about the situation in Israel? Yes, it's certainly about all of that. Is it something for us to learn from and to live our lives after? Of course it is. But mainly, beloved, the whole point is that this is all about God. It's all about God. And I'm saying that fairly emphatically this morning because, again, in a lot of conversations with people, not just here in the church, but not, in fact, mostly not here in the church, but outside of the church, you will hear people make claims about things that they don't understand, which is that, I will derive from Scripture everything that I want for me instead of understanding that, no, what we get out of Scripture is not about us. What we're studying is God. We're studying Him. We're learning about Him, how He operates, how He thinks, how He moves, how He makes decisions, how He infuses us with the privilege to be a part of His work. You see, our human flesh is so sinful that it wants everything for itself, including the Word of God, so that it can take it and do something with it so its life is fulfilled. That's our selfishness. 
It's not wrong to want blessings from God. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is every time you open the Bible and you begin to read, you should not just have the mindset that says, okay, God, what do you want for me to get out of this? Individually so that I can do something with my life. That's certainly true, but the main emphasis is studying the Word of God so that we can look to Him and say, God, you are awesome. It's you. You are the hero. You're the one that's the focus. This is all about you. This life is not about me. This life is about what you want. It's about what you want as a, for me to be as a husband or as to be as a wife or to be as a child or to be as an employee or a neighbor or anybody else. We study the Lord so that we know how He wants us to live, not just so we can get some blessing from Him. I'm convinced. Love. That's a big problem with the church today is that we're so selfish, so sinful in our core, that even though we say we want to worship God, what we're really looking for is for Him to give us something for us. Because our sinfulness is hoarding. Fix me, God. Help me, God. Give me this, God. Do this for me, God. Don't let that happen, God. Why would you? Why would you? Don't do blah, blah, blah. Instead, we should be saying, God, you are God. Quite honestly, like Job, he said it best. For the Lord slay me. Yet will I serve you. It's all about God. This is a miraculous work of the Lord so that we will learn about God, so that we trust Him for what He does, not for what we get. It's all about Him. So what's your takeaway from all of this? Well, truly, God must be doing some things in your life, in my life, that we don't understand. I'm certainly convinced that that's the case. What's the answer? We're to trust Him. That's what we're to do. We just trust Him. We make our decisions based off trust. We live our lives based off trust. Let's follow Ecclesiastes. We fear the Lord. And we listen to what He wants. Again, you may be in a situation right now that seems pointless and senseless. And in your mind, you're asking God, what are you doing? Well, His Word reveals to us, if we're listening carefully, that He is at work, isn't He? He's always at work. He never stops looking after us and caring for us, even if we don't understand it. So I guess the bottom line would be that we need to regularly examine our hearts. Again, it's very fitting that we're going to take communion here in just a second. Because the commandment that Jesus left to the disciples was on that night before he would be crucified was, examine your hearts. Examine your hearts. Always be looking to see whether you're living in fear or whether you're really living in faith. Which one are you doing? Which part are you living out here? You see, if you live a life of fear, it's going to lead you in a lot of different directions. I'll close with this. There's an article. This guy's not a believer, but I can tell. But he does have some good things to say to us. You know, the world can teach us about some things sometimes if we're listening. He says, what are the characteristics of a fear-driven life? That's his question in the article. In a fear-driven life, the driving force behind most thoughts and actions is fear. Pretty simple. This may be the fear of death, the fear of loneliness, the fear of poverty, or the fear of pain. This fear leads to a belief in one's own mortality and a sense of isolation and a sense of scarcity in life, resulting in the fear of death, loneliness, and poverty, respectively. The more fearful we are, the more we feel the need to control our life by controlling nature and everything else so as to avoid death. Loneliness and poverty and pain. Fear can paralyze us into inaction. 
It can numb our emotion and thoughts, resulting in poor decisions and judgment. It impairs our insights. And I underline this because I think this is really wise. Any decision that is made out of fear tends to lead to more fear and separation. It's pretty brilliant. Simple, but brilliant. Listen, as we go to the Lord's table in just a moment, I think the question for all of us would be, let's just put ourselves in the place of Joseph, in the place of Mary, quite honestly, and just look at our lives and say, Lord, there are a lot of things going on that I just don't understand why they've happened the way they have, why it looks the way it does down the pike, and begin to ask, is it fear that I'm listening to? Is that what's driving me? Are my decisions being motivated by what I don't understand and therefore I'm doing knee-jerk reactions based on trying to figure out the scenario? Or am I simply standing back and saying, Lord, yeah, I really don't get it. I mean, if it were me, I would have done it a totally different way. But here's what I am saying, Lord. I'm taking my hands off the wheel and I'm going to trust you. I'm just going to trust you. I'm just going to trust you. And I believe that as Jesus was giving the disciples that meal that night, he was saying to them, boys, do you trust me? Here is my blood. Here is my body. Take, eat it, all of it, and do this in remembrance of me because there are going to be lots of times in your lives that you're going to wonder what's going on. And so this is a reminder that I have overcome all of these problems. I've rescued you. You're safe. You gotta trust me. Amen. The deacons can come forward. Let's pray together as they're coming, and we'll take part in the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for the message of life through a poor young man and a poor young woman. Lord, you could have chosen the richest of the rich, the most famous of the famous to bring your son into the world, but that's not how you work. You do things that no man can take credit for, that we would all look to and say, it has to be God. And so Lord, as you've called us to regularly worship you together as a body, on this morning, as every month in the year, the second Sunday, we come before your table as a reminder of your great gift to us, the life that you led here and the life that you showed us, that you truly were God who came in the flesh to rescue us. And so, Lord, in our hearts we worship you, but often in our flesh we are very distracted from you. We allow a lot of things to get in the way. And so I pray that each of us, in our own ways, as you would deal with us individually through this time, will come fresh and new to your table, surrendering, opening our hearts before you, and just saying, Lord, expose the parts of me that I need to see, that I need to surrender to you, that I need to give to you, so that you can do in me what you really desire to do. Even if I never understand it, even if I never see something big or monumental from it, Lord, on this day we're reminded to trust you and to thank you. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Thank <laughs> you.